a Town Square Media of Southeast Wyoming podcast. AM 650 KGAB, Cheyenne's number one news talk radio station. On the phone from Gillette, I have Dr. John Manson. Good morning, uh, good morning, doctor. Hey, Doug. Thanks for having me on. Yes, we appreciate you calling in. I am pronouncing your last name correctly, right? Yeah, it's Mansell. I'm from Alabama, so we oh. say everything, you know, police, modem, Mansell. <laughs> okay. Now, now you're a strong opponent of Medicaid expansion. You're, you're a physician. You work in the business. Why are you opposed to Medicaid expansion? Well, whenever you're a physician, you oppose a policy that's intended to improve access. You have to be very careful that it makes you look like you're opposing all improved access. Okay. And that's certainly not the case. There's no physician in Wyoming that feels that way, or nurse, or pharmacist, or physical therapist. We all wish we had the magic wand to give 100% access across the board. Mm-hmm. So where some of us oppose Medicaid expansion is... Uh, when we see that a program like Medicaid expansion actually is not effective and it's not a sustainable program, and it also kills the existing Medicaid or maims it to the point that people who truly need Medicaid, the core program, uh, are not able to get it or they're put on longer waiting lists or the funds uh, dry up to the point that regular Medicaid suffers from an inadequate funding source. Why why would it uh, dry up the regular Medicaid program? Well, there's several reasons for that. Um, firstly, uh, and other states have expanded um, the uh, resources that it takes to pay for it and the resources that it takes to administer it are stressed. And so people who uh, would normally be on Medicaid have to wait longer uh, to get into the system. And we've seen that across several states where they did expansion and people who would have normally entered the regular Medicaid program find it more difficult um, based on the waiting list to get into regular Medicaid. And regular Medicaid is truly designed, as it has been since about 1967, for those people who really have no other resources, that they're, they're truly the truly needy. They're people who are in, you know, quadriplegic, paraplegic, um, elderly with no other resources, uh, single moms. Um, and, and so in, in some instances, uh, these people have no other place to turn, whereas Medicaid expansion uh, makes it available for able-bodied adults who fall into just certain economic targets. No. And this can be manipulated. People can just elect to be within that income range to become eligible for Medicaid. Are, are you concerned, for example, that some employers might pull, uh, might pull their uh, medical coverage at work if Medicaid was expanded? Because I've heard that argument. Well, that's not only a theoretical observation. Um, it was openly discussed up here in Campbell County by some employers that to try to save their business model, they were just going to drop their health care benefit and, uh, and dump people into the expansion group of people. And they can do this through certain ways. One, they can break up a full-time job into two part-time jobs that don't pay enough to put them inside that income range that allows them to be a Medicaid expansion uh uh, candidates or, or recipients, you mm-hmm. know. Another is they can break down a business unit and get it to below the size the Affordable Care Act requires, which I think is 50 employees, to where the combination of uh, breaking a business unit into smaller units and converting full-time jobs to part-time jobs means they can dump as many of the employees as they feel like into the Medicaid expansion program. So that being the case, do you think the projections of twenty four to 25,000 people getting coverage under this program, if it was to be expanded, do you think those are conservative? 
I think that they're erroneous, and there are several reasons why. Um, there are several invalid assumptions with that. Okay. Firstly, the calculations of the numbers are based on census data, and yet the actual numbers are based on the uh, CMS criteria, which don't completely match up. Okay. Um, and so that being the case, uh, what we've seen in other states is they've been off by as much as 100% or even 300% in what they um, estimated. And, and the best way to look at that is not to argue the numbers of people on it. It's just to look at their raw budget changes. So if you look at the before and after Obamacare Medicaid budget fractions, for example, in Ohio, they were 29% of the state budget was Medicaid, and now it's 38%. In Alaska which is sort of similar to us in that it's a more rural state, has natural resources. Before Obamacare and Medicaid expansion, Medicaid was 11% of the Alaskan budget, their total state budget. Now it's 21%, so it almost doubled. Okay. And so if you look at all the states, there's none of them where they made a prediction where they didn't underpredict by at least a minimum of about 20%, and many of them the, uh, the increase is much higher than that. Doctor, let me let me toss out the the biggest argument I heard in the last legislative session, and as you know, it made it through the House, didn't get into the Senate because it didn't make it through committee. But the biggest argument I heard uh, from people uh, who who said they previously opposed expansion was, well, look, we've got twenty five thousand. That's the number they quote uh, people who aren't getting medical coverage. Uh, we need to find a way to cover these people. I'm not wild about this idea, but nobody has a better idea, and right now they're not covered, and it's costing our hospitals a lot of money on uncompensated care. What's your reaction to all that? So there are several different uh, aspects to answering that question, and I don't want to get so far in the weeds that your listeners go to sleep, but okay. I think that we can cover them pretty quickly. Okay. Um, firstly, uh, Josh Hanna, who's the spokesperson for the Wyoming Hospital Association that you had on last week, Josh is a great guy, but he stuck with a science fiction explanation to some of this problem. Okay. Even Josh, last year on a panel we were on on PBS together, admitted that the Wyoming hospitals do not get paid enough to cover the cost of the care. Okay. And so what that means is when you expand the number of patients in your hospital who don't pay enough to cover the cost of the care, you're volunteering to increase the number of people who come in and cause you to lose money faster. And and that means that you're actually volunteering to cause your hospital to go under faster. So you're making the problem worse, not better. Exactly. If, if you're the CEO of a company and you went to the board of your company and you said, you know what, I'd like to increase the number of customers that cause us to lose money, pretty sure you're going to get fired as the CEO of that business. Okay. And And yet what has happened is across the country since about 1987 when Medicare and Medicaid started cutting their reimbursement rate because they were trying to sustain the programs, um, Medicare and Medicaid don't pay enough to cover the cost of the care itself. So if it costs a dollar to give you, let's say, a unit of care, on average, Medicare pays you 90 cents and Medicaid pays you 87 cents. So it doesn't cover the cost dollar. Okay. And, and so that being the case, if you look across the United States last year and we look at the number of rural hospitals that went out of business, last year we broke a record. It's 20 rural hospitals went out of business. And most of these were in states that had expanded Medicaid. Medicaid did nothing to stabilize or save them fiscally for the uncompensated care argument. Because instead of having people come in and pay you enough to cover the cost of the care, we just increase the number of people who show up and don't pay you enough. You get a little bit of money. And that's not the hospital's fault, of course. The reason that they want Medicaid expansion is 
they're already starving because Medicare doesn't cover enough, and Medicare buys half of health care in the United States. So they are starving because the other government programs have underpaid them. It's, it's a lesson when you're learning to be a lifeguard in water safety instruction. The first thing you need to know about a drowning swimmer is a drowning swimmer will drown you as well if you try to save them. Right. And so the hospitals across the country are basically drowning swimmers. They're so stressed by Medicare, any form of revenue looks attractive to them, even if it's uh, short-term and going to just cause them to die faster. And, and that's basically what Medicaid expansion uh, does to them. Okay. The I'm other here. point to make. Go ahead. Go ahead. The other point to make is, you know, when we talk about we have these, you know, twenty-four thousand people who are uh, unable to get care, the reason that care has gotten so expensive is because the government is basically underpaying the cost of the care, which has caused all prices across the board to go up, and that's called cost shifting. And so the, the better way to do this, instead of doubling down on more government programs that will underpay the cost of the care, and some people characterize that as the government is shoplifting health care, is to uh, make health care uh, easier to access by making it more transparent. And there are several easy ways to do that. We've taken some baby steps. For example, hospitals are required to post in plain English the cost of stuff, um, what it costs to come in and do something. I'll give you a great example. One of the legislators came up to me last year, and he was angry because he'd paid about $3,800 for a lumbar spine MRI at one of the hospitals. And I said, well, if you'd gone across the street, the hospital across the street would have charged you $330 for the same MRI. Oh, my Lord. And he couldn't find the pricing to compare the two. That's quite right? a difference. And we, we find gas stations for not putting up their price per gallon on a big sign out front, but we've not found hospitals yet. But we're getting to the point where we're forcing them to, to do that. And now's the time for us as physicians to be told, you know what, if someone calls your office and says, how much does an apodectomy cost or how much does you know, a service cost, we should be able to respond almost immediately. Why is there resistance you know, to, to that? Why, why is there resistance to that? Because it makes people uncomfortable that, that they have to sort of, I'll, I'll show you mine if you'll show me yours. They don't like having that uh, to show the prices. It's much easier to <laughs> to go to the hospital and go, oh, by the way, you owe us $50,000 for that thing. Uh, and and the other thing, too, is, is um, insurance companies have contracts with doctors and contracts with hospitals, and these are in-network contracts, and they're all private contracts, so that uh, maybe uh, the hospital is happy it got a particular price from a particular insurance company, the insurance cap uh, company is happy it managed to negotiate them down to the price, but they don't want anyone else to find out because they might get a better deal both the hospitals and the physicians and the insurance companies might get a better deal if we just don't share that information. And so forcing transparency from the hospitals to the patients, from the doctors to the patients, is a first step. But another one would be when an insurance company has a contract with either one of these, they have to give the, um, the provider, be it a doctor or a hospital, they have to give them their full price list up front. And, and that way, if they know what the full price list is, then you can start having what's norm, a considered a normal market dynamic. Let's say that a general surgeon knows he's going to get paid X by an insurance company to do a gallbladder, and he goes, you know what, I'd be willing to take a 15% haircut on that. I'll take a 15% discount if you'll give me a preferred provider status with your insurance company and, and sort of direct your patients toward me because I'm a value. But we don't have the capacity to do that right now. And that's normal business dynamic is pricing signals. 
we lack that in healthcare. And so fixing that is a first step. The other the other big step would be, you know, right now if you have a deductible of let's say six thousand dollars and you have to burn through that before you can um, start uh, getting the insurance company to cover stuff. Right now, you are stuck with the uh, insurance company's contracted price points for whatever services you get, which means you have no room to negotiate. So let's say you're the legislator I, I just told you about who had to go pay $3,800 for an MRI. Well, if patients were allowed to negotiate their own prices within the deductible, and they could go get their MRI for $330, then everyone should be happy. The patient's happy because they got a value. The insurance company is happy because they managed to get more value within the deductible, more goods and services from the healthcare system before broaching or pushing through that $6,000 deductible. But right now, patients don't have the ability to do that, and insurance contracts don't let them do that. So it sounds like you're advocating putting the free market system to work in medical care, in a nutshell. Uh, that is a big part of it. There are certain parts of the healthcare system that will never be free market. Um, the McCarran-Ferguson Act back in 1947 uh, made insurance companies uh, basically, they gave them a waiver against any antitrust action. And so insurance companies can never be, um, can never be sued or prosecuted by, uh, by the government for that. And that's empowered them somewhat. Some insurance companies, for example, their network policy, their network contracts with providers, um, you don't actually know what you're going to get paid in the contract, and they don't have to tell you, but if you don't sign the contract to go in network, you're basically invisible to patients because you're not, you're not part of that particular insurance company system. And, and under the um, McCarran-Ferguson Act, that could almost be um, characterized as coercion because it's an undue influence on the other parties in the contract with you. So having the insurance companies have to fess up at the beginning, if you sign a network contract, you get to see your whole price list for what you're agreeing to is also a very important step. Okay, I'm speaking with Dr. John Mansell from uh, Gillette about why we should not expand Medicaid in Wyoming. And uh, by the way, if you have any questions or comments, we do have an open phone line at 632-6500. That's 632-6500. Um, doctor, as, as I'm sure you're aware, in the legislature this past session, a bill had uh, phrasing that said that we would only only continue the expansion as long as the federal government picked up, I believe it was 92% of the tab. I've been told that's unenforceable. Is that true? That's absolutely true. And uh, several states uh, have tried to sue to get out um, because they are no longer meeting that requirement. And so far, they've lost their cases. It, it sort of reminds me, um, I'm, a, I'm a frequent listener of Town Square Media, and you've got a series of commercials uh, uh, lately about the guy who advertises to get you out of your timeshare contract. Right. Right. Um, he's got a gruff voice. Um, he's, he's very, you know, charismatic on the air. But I think it would be hilarious for us to have the same commercial uh, about states trying to sue to get out of Medicaid because basically there's nothing you can do about it. Once you expand, not only uh, are you not able to put in work requirements and you're not able to um, shrink back to just core Medicaid, you can't even get rid of people that you find that were ineligible people. You're just so stuck. If you picked up someone who was actually not eligible and you made a mistake in the intake process, you're not even allowed to get rid of those people. That seems odd. Why is that in there? 
I I don't know. It doesn't seem like it's good public policy. It seems to me like it's more of a way to railroad our system into breaking. And that's actually what we what we tend to see here is we actually see medical refugees across Wyoming, even in Gillette, where they've come from California or Oregon or Washington or even New York State. And what they do is is um, they move here because the Medicaid is no different, but the healthcare system where they came from has become saturated, and they can't get in to see anybody because there's not enough healthcare infrastructure to see them. Uh-huh. So, a couple of great examples of that are in Wisconsin. We know there's several thousand people who share addresses in Wisconsin who actually live in Pennsylvania, New York, and New Jersey, but because they can't actually get healthcare in those states, they commute to Wisconsin to get their health care because Medicaid is um, saturated or broken their local health care system. And in Chicago, the uh, Medicaid recipients, uh, once again, uh, the inner city system is saturated. And so we have seen in the last 15 years more and more inner city people drive three or four hours outside of Chicago and go to the rural hospitals. And um, down as far away as the Iowa border, and so we're seeing people who go down to um, get their obstetric care, go to the emergency room, because it's actually a shorter four-hour drive to go down to a rural hospital than it is to wait eight to ten hours in a Chicago uh, emergency room waiting room. Which tells you something about their health care system in Chicago, I guess. But. And, but the thing is, there are several hospitals there. It's just that we don't have the infrastructure to be able to handle that many people, especially if every time you see somebody you lose um, money at that hospital. Not that an inner city hospital is trying to make money, it's just they have to have enough revenue to keep the doors open. And so it becomes an ever-shrinking facility for the people who need it most. And the real sad thing on that is the other people caught up in this saturation are the people who are on the core Medicaid program, so they wind up getting punished for you expanding it to the able-bodied adults. And that's why healthcare providers um, who sort of track this tend to be against Medicaid expansion because we know who our core Medicaid patients are. We take care of them. I see Medicaid patients every day. But when we expand, what we're going to see is is that those people's needs are going to get displaced or prioritized down or diluted. And um, and so that means that um, they're not getting the care they got before expansion. The other problem here that we're going to see, too, and this sort of goes back to what Sven was talking about in the previous half hour is, when you expand, um, there's no faucet control on what happens when you flip the, the switch. You know, the people show up, and you've decided to expand under the new criteria, and you're not allowed to change any of the criteria or slow down uh, the onset and the rate of expansion. And so the only two responses a state has to that expansion are they can either raise taxes, which is politically hard for politicians to do because most of their voters don't want that, or they can lower the rates of reimbursement which is much easier to do. So, for example, uh, my core training is as an anesthesiologist. I'm a physician anesthesiologist. In New Jersey right now, uh, a physician anesthesiologist could be doing an open heart or a liver transplant or whatever, but after they pay the cost of their malpractice and pay the administrative cost of billing and their own health insurance, they make less than 20 bucks an hour. So guess what state is really screaming short of anesthesiologists? Well, New Jersey, because they make less than 20 bucks an hour. That's before they even pay taxes, by the way. Mm. And that's what we're seeing in Medicaid programs across the country is when they realize that they they can't afford the budget allocation for that, they have to shrink the the reimbursement. And then that means that there's fewer people that can accept it, which means there's not as much access to health care, which, of course, means 
that patients don't get the access they were promised when you expanded in the first place. Doctor, is there another way we could resolve the, the problem for the working poor in Wyoming who don't have coverage besides expanding Medicaid? I mean, is there another way we could approach this? Absolutely. Last year, the last session, Clark Stith had a great bill um, that didn't make it out of committee. And what he was proposing was uh, capping the cash billing to someone who didn't have insurance to being no more than 250% of a Medicare rate. Medicare rates tend to be discounted, depending on which specialty, anywhere from 82% to 40 or 50% of, of a fair market value. And so the idea there is, is if, if a patient had access to a price that was a, a Medicare multiple that was relatively low, um, then uh, the cost of you know an office visit would be back down in the $60 range, and the cost of labs and x-rays and stuff would be much less, and so they would be able to, it would be uh, affordable for them. And unfortunately, that bill died in committee. Um, the other thing, too, is is if you are able to get them the ability to um, negotiate that rate or at least give them a cap on what they can be charged because they don't have insurance, then that also um, emboldens uh, other people under that um, being able to negotiate within the deductible because they can see that... Uh, that it's an option for them to do. And that means that the insurance companies have to become more price competitive on their premium structure. All those start acting like a normal market. When you and I go out to buy groceries and we know this grocery store is more spendy and this one is not, or this gas station has got a lower price per gallon, suddenly you start having real dynamics where people start picking where they're going based on pricing and convenience. And, and that's what's going to drive prices down. Trying to double down on the putting more government money into it is what got us here in the begin with. We didn't have this big a disparity in 1987 when they decided to start lowering Medicare reimbursement rates. Healthcare was much more affordable 40 years ago. Okay, I'm speaking with uh, Dr. John Mansell from Gillette. We're talking about Medicaid expansion, why he feels it's a bad idea. Doctor, as you know, uh, a bill did make it through the House here for the first time ever. Um, they were saying it's coming back. The Revenue Committee um, has voted to bring this up again. We don't know if it'll be during a special session. There's some sentiment that it might be. We don't know that for sure. But what, what I'm getting at here is, is, do you think this idea is just inevitable and, and it's going to happen or not? I don't think it's inevitable. I think that um, if people will will wake up and realize that if we start making healthcare look like any other business activity where they're, they're buyers and sellers of, of goods and services and not trying to make it different and try to contort it or distort normal behavior of people who are customers and businesses, this actually has the potential to, to look completely normal. And it won't take that long to do. If you force us all into price transparency within two or three years, People will be savvy enough. There'll be an equivalent to Gas Buddy, where people can just go online and say, "Well, how much does this cost at all the hospitals and doctors across the state?" And we already have some doctors who have posted on their website, "This is what it costs for me to do this. This is what it costs for me to do that." Upstairs for me in Gillette is a general surgeon, and she posts her price list online. And if you call her office because there's something she didn't have on the list, they'll tell you very quickly what it would cost. And and so I think being able to use traditional price signaling to be able to see if it's a value for you or not is a huge first step for us. Um, and being able to be a cash-based customer but not...
Your day weather forecast is brought to you by Bob Ruart Motors. Doing business without the hassle, all roads lead to BobRuartMotors.com. Active spring weather through the weekend and this upcoming week here around the Cheyenne region. Daily shower and thunderstorm activity in the afternoon, evening, and even some overnight storms. Some moderate to heavy rain and strong thunderstorm activity capable of small hail and gusty winds. A lot of activity, though, staying just garden variety. Weekend highs near 60, lows near 40. I'm meteorologist Mark Hewer. You knew the risks when you decided to drive drunk. There could be a crash. People could get hurt or killed. But that didn't stop you, did it? You knew you could get arrested. You could incur huge legal expenses. And you could possibly even lose your job. You were well aware of the consequences of driving drunk. But one thing's for sure. You were wrong when you said it was no big deal. Drive sober or get pulled over. This message brought to you by NHTSA. Speaking with uh, Dr. Halel Newman, Dr. Newman is the uh, Israeli General Counsel for the Southwestern United States based in Los Angeles. Uh, Dr. Newman, first of all, I understand you're visiting our area today. What, what, what's, what's, what's the purpose of your visit? Uh, hi there. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, yes, uh, the purpose of my visit is to uh, meet up with elected officials, the governor, um, business uh, ties, uh, we are uh, with the objective of expanding and enhancing our ties in all spheres between Israel uh, and Wyoming and the entire mountain region. What sort of business ties are there between Israel and Wyoming? Well, not enough. <laughs> That's why I'm here. <laughs> uh, well, there's tremendous potential in the relations. Uh, we know the strengths of Wyoming, especially in the field of energy and uh, agriculture and tourism. And the entire mountain region has a lot of potential, and Israel can link up uh, very well with these fields and others. Uh, we would like to bring to the table the field of innovation and perhaps research and development in the field of um, the use of carbon and to try to save jobs of uh, the coal mines and, and things like that. So I think that there's a lot we can do together. We can also learn a lot from Wyoming and the region in the, in the fields of mineral extraction and energy and natural resources and parks. So my idea is to expand and enhance our relations as much as possible. Dr. Newman, why, why aren't there existing ties, do you believe? Uh, well, there are ties, but there's just not enough. I think that there's not enough uh, visits, a mutual visits and delegations between Israel and Wyoming and the, and the region. And that's why I came, in order to facilitate and open up a new future of ongoing relations and engagements. Uh, I met also with the Business Alliance, and we discussed different options of working together. And our hope is that we will bring more delegations, whether they be physical or virtual, in order to enhance the contacts. Um, our, our consulate sits in Los Angeles. And uh, not very often do we uh, visit Wyoming. So now we're opening a new future, and I intend to visit quite often in order to uh, expand these contacts for the benefit of all people. Now that the COVID-19 pandemic is at least easing somewhat, do you think that will become a little bit easier? Yes, definitely. Uh, I can just tell you that for, from Israel's perspective, uh, the majority of the population have been vaccinated. And therefore, the country has opened up domestically uh, completely. We, we have uh, events with thousands of people. There are no limitations anymore within Israel. 
And uh, we also believe that we can now enhance uh, contacts uh, with people overseas um, and move forward. Uh, the world is opening up after coronavirus, and coronavirus has actually accelerated many fields of business uh, that are the, are the fields for the future. And uh, Israel is a pioneer and a powerhouse in the fields of innovation, many of them as a result of coronavirus. How, how so is the result of coronavirus? Tell us about that. Sure. Um, well, there's been a shift in the economic world order, I would say. Uh, it began before coronavirus with a shift towards innovation and artificial intelligence. And uh, Israel is really a, uh, a global leader in the different fields of innovation. And they touch every single field of application, uh, whether it's agriculture, irrigation, uh, medicine, uh, automobile industry, just uh, smart mobility, smart cities, all these fields. Now, coronavirus accelerated this trend towards artificial intelligence, self-reliance, streaming services, cyber cyber uh, services and security, um, uh, all these fields, automation, robotics, uh, these are the fields of the future which base themselves mainly on artificial intelligence. And uh, Israel is lucky to be in, in that position of a global leader and a powerhouse in the fields of innovation. You know, we never had natural resources to rely on. So we developed the field of innovation. And innovation touches on every single field. Modern technology impacts everything today. Well, you, you mentioned Israel doesn't have a lot of natural resources. We have the natural resources here in Wyoming. Um, if you have the innovation, I could see where that could be a successful partnership. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm referring to. That uh, you hit it 100 percent. That we can learn from Wyoming, especially in the fields of natural resources and how to extract many minerals from the earth. And uh, we might need many things that are extracted from the mining here in Wyoming. And we can share with our experience and knowledge in the fields of innovation and how to um, use modern technology in order to improve access and uh, even vocational training of people that fear that they might lose their jobs or something like that. We can, we can perhaps assist in vocational training and um, preparing the people for the future trends. Okay, I'm speaking with Dr. Halel Newman. Dr. Newman is the uh, Israeli Consul General for the Southwest United States, uh, based in Los Angeles. He's visiting uh, Southeast Wyoming. We are pre-recording this interview on Friday. It will air on Saturday. Uh, Dr. Newman, switching gears uh, back in Israel, uh, there's a ceasefire. How's that holding up with Hamas? Yes, uh, of course, we're very glad that there's a ceasefire, but... Uh for a long-term solution, we have to um, disarm the Hamas. The Hamas is a terrorist organization that has encamped itself within the Gaza Strip adjacent to Israel's border on the southern border, and they instigate violence according to their own interests and perceived interests and their rivalry with the Palestinian Authority, and uh, they instigate violence. They, they launch rockets against civilians. Uh, we had more than five million civilians under the threat of rockets there to rush to bomb shelters within 15 seconds. This is an impossible reality. Um, you know, they, they talk a lot about uh, relinquishing territory for peace. So Israel did that. Israel gave territory to the Palestinian Authority. The entire Gaza Strip was vacated by Israel. And the result is that we have not received peace. We have received rockets and terrorist attacks. So we have to address this issue. And a long-term solution is has to address the Hamas antagonism and aggression 
perhaps disarm them, uh, disable them completely. Now, I'm reading that Iran is largely behind this. Is that correct? Yes, that is 100% correct. Iran, unfortunately, is behind a, a lot of the malign activity in the entire Middle East. Uh, Iran is the number one state sponsor of terrorism, and they support proxy military radical groups like the Hamas and the Hezbollah and Palestinian jihad organizations. And they're dead set against the Western values, and Israel represents those Western values, uh, like liberty and freedom and LGBT rights and things like that. So they attack Israel, and they use their proxy groups like Hamas and Hezbollah, and they instill unrest in the entire Middle East. You know, Israel has normalized relations with a few Arab countries recently, like UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, and Iran is opposing any kind of peace, coexistence, or normalization. So they use their proxies to try and instill unrest and violence. So can you solve the problem without dealing with Iran? Uh, perhaps you're right. We do have to deal with Iran. Um, but we also have to deal with the immediate problem, which is the proxy groups themselves, which are Hamas and Hezbollah. So if we manage, for instance, to cut off the um, supplies or the arms and the military and financial supplies from Iran to Hamas, uh, then we might not solve uh, the Iranian problem, but we can solve the Hamas aggression and uh, violence against civilians. So there are different ways of dealing with the problem. I think that Iran is a long-term, very long-term issue, and uh, we won't see a real change there unless they're under extreme pressure and the regime changes its policy. Uh, but we can deal with the Hamas and the Hezbollah in, in different means. And what might those means be, militarily or, or, or diplomatically? Well, we'd like to solve it diplomatically. Um, unfortunately, they force us very often to, to reach a military confrontation. When they launch rockets against our civilians, then we have to act in self-defense um, because they, they launch from civilian populated areas against civilian populated areas, which is a double war crime. So we have to act in self-defense. But our hope is that the Hamas may one day choose the path of peace. And maybe they will uh, choose living in coexistence. They haven't cho chosen that path yet. Um, and we one way of working with, the, with um, blocking this is by trying to prevent the uh, supply chains, uh, the shipments that come from Iran through Damascus sometimes to, to the Hamas. Um, so we have to act in different ways in order to prevent a strengthening of uh, the Hamas. Now on the positive side, from what I've read, your Iron Dome missile defenses have worked pretty well. Is that correct? Yes, it is wonderful. It had a 90% success rate in interception of rockets. I mean, the, the Hamas launched more than 4,000 rockets against uh, the state of Israel, um, and the majority, 90%, were intercepted mid-air. And this is a wonderful model of cooperation between Israel and the United States because the Iron Dome was developed uh, in collaboration between the United States and Israel. And now the uh, Iron Dome uh, interceptors are even deployed in the United States to save American lives. Dr. Newman, are, are you at all concerned about um, possibly some growing political support in, Ameri in the American Congress for Hamas? Well, I hope not. I hope that everyone sane in their mind would not support Hamas, which is a terrorist organization. You know, Hamas is, de is a declared terrorist organization not only by Israel and the United States, but even by Arab countries. 
and the uh, European countries and Australia and other places. So there's wide consensus on the fact that Hamas is a terrorist organization. And they, I can only pity those who, who feel some kind of solidarity with the Hamas. They're totally um, misled, uh, if not worse than that. Um, I don't see uh, much support for Hamas in the Congress. Um, I think there's a large, wide consensus of support of the relationship between Israel and the United States in the Congress, uh, both in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. And we've seen also the wonderful support of President Biden. Um, and so um, we, we are very confident in the relationship. You know, the relationship is beyond any specific individual or party. It's a bipartisan relationship based on fundamental values. Dr. Newman, in terms of the ceasefire, obviously a ceasefire is not probably going to be a permanent solution. Where, where do we go from here in terms of, of uh, achieving fee, uh, peace in this situation? Well, um, our policy has been to, to show the path of economic viability so that the Palestinian people would choose the way of peace and coexistence. And we've done that um, in a big way with the Palestinian Authority if one visits, for instance, Ramallah in the West Bank, uh, which is the center of the Palestinian Authority, then you'll see a thriving city, uh, which was enabled by Israel. Uh, Israel assists the Palestinian Authority in this cooperation in many ways. Unfortunately, there are radicals within the Palestinian Authority, and especially the Hamas in the Gaza Strip, and Islamic Jihad organizations, and they have chosen from the beginning uh, the path of conflict. You know, they have not recognized Israel and they, there's not a dispute about water or territories. They refuse to um, come to terms with the existence of the state of Israel in any border. So uh, the long-term path is that the Palestinian people must choose, must choose the way of peace and coexistence instead of the path of confrontation like Hamas. Uh, we must show them the two options. One option is economic viability and coexistence and livelihood, success and prosperity. And the other one is death and devastation, which is offered by the Hamas. Dr. Newman, looking again at the long-term situation in regard to Iran, how concerned are you about Iran developing a nuclear weapon that might be used against Israel? We are extremely concerned. We see that as the number one existential threat, not only to Israel, but to, to the, West, uh, the West in general. Uh, we must do everything, and we will do everything, in order to make sure that Iran does not have military nuclear capability. And that is also the uh, stated policy of the United States. Um, now, we may have difference of opinion about what is the best uh, path to do that and to prevent Iran, but the objective is clear. We must prevent Iran from a nuclear capability, um, and Israel will do everything that is necessary in order to make sure that that uh, that Iran does not have military nuclear capability. Now, my understanding is that uh, Mr. Ahmadinejad, uh, who's a hardliner, has announced he's running for president of Iran again. Is that a big concern? Well, you know, it doesn't really make a big difference. Uh, the presidents and the supreme leader are um, are very close, uh, intimate in their policy. There's no real distinction, for instance, between the supreme leader and the president. That's a um, the deception on the behalf of uh, Iran, where they try to uh, try to give this impression as if there's a moderate uh, president and a uh, conservative supreme leader. They're aligned in their policy and in their ambitions. Their ambitions are to instill unrest in the entire Middle East. They've already expanded their 
influence all the way from Tehran to Damascus to the Mediterranean Sea. Um, so Iran is a threat. Iran is a threat to the entire Western world, their terrorism um, and their nuclear capability. Dr. Newman, I've asked you questions for the past 15 minutes. What would you like to tell our listeners? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'd like to tell your listeners that uh, Israel is a strong friend and ally of the United States in general, and especially of uh, Wyoming and the mountain region, and that we believe that there's tremendous potential in our relationship. Uh, we can enhance our trade and business ties, um, and um, we should. Uh, people can follow our updates and our sites of the Consulate General of Israel in Los Angeles, and anyone who would like to enhance uh, their business ties or cultural ties with Israel is invited to, to make contact with us at the consulate in L.A. And we visit quite often and we'll be glad to uh, promote such meetings and ties between local people and the state of Israel. Dr. Newman, I appreciate your time this morning and welcome to Wyoming. Thank you very much. And good luck and good health to all your listeners and to you. They'll challenge your authority. They'll try to break your will. They'll push you to the edge of your sanity. Because that's what kids do. But this car is your territory, not theirs. Defend it. Who makes the payments? Who cleans it? Who drives it? You do. That's who. And in here, your word is law. So when you say you won't move until everyone's buckled up, you won't budge an inch until you hear that click. Never give up until they buckle up. A message from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. For more information, visit safercar.gov slash kids buckle up. I expect it to be a lot easier. I thought it was going to be a piece of cake. I didn't know what step to take next. I was transitioning from the military. I was a vehicle gunner. An avionics specialist. I was an MP, military police. My friends thought I could do anything. I missed my unit, my family. Playing with my daughter, I, I felt like a stranger. I was overwhelmed. I couldn't sleep. I just wanted to be by myself. I didn't have a clear sense of what to do next. I was too proud. And then I thought, if I'm going through this, other veterans have gone through it too, too right? started to open up and it made a huge difference so i reached out and i saw that i wasn't alone because before i was able to take on my next mission i had to take on just taking care of myself to find purpose, purpose. go to maketheconnection.net to learn how other veterans have overcome the challenges of transitioning out of the military the time. It's Wake Up Wyoming. My name is Glenn Wood. Thanks for joining me. Talk about suicide awareness all this week. Nikki Hernandez is with me right now. She's a licensed clinical social worker, veteran, and director of psychological health at Wyoming Air National Guard. Thanks for coming on with me this morning, Nikki. So there he is for those people that are in military service or have served in the military. There's usually this idea, well, you know, I went through all of this. I'm military. I'm tough enough. And so there's sometimes a stigmatism or an inability to talk about problems that people are really going through. And that can be dangerous, can it? 
Yes. Well, thank you so much, Glenn, for having me. Um, I think it's important to understand that seeking help does not always mean that you have a mental illness. So all of us really face stressors at some point in our life, and and talking to someone can really help improve our overall well-being, and that is definitely true um, for our military community as well. So for those people who have served or are serving now, how do do someone like me, you know, let's say talk to them about a problem they may not have? I'm not someone who's served, so I seem to be sort of an outsider to them when it comes to these kind of problems, as if I don't understand. But I'd like to be able to help them out if I see that they're having a problem. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the first thing I would say is a uh, great job for noticing. I think a lot of times that's really the first step is, you know, knowing um, the people around you, the people that you care about well enough to know when something has changed. And I think the most important thing is to approach them with compassion and, you know, just that gentle caring and, and express that you're concerned Um I know for our local resources, members of the military community can call our military crisis line, um, which is 1-800-273-8255. But if it's not a crisis, there's lots of resources um, where someone can maybe, you know, come in and talk to someone before things um, get worse. And so, you know, I think just Again, approaching them, knowing where you might um, help connect them is really important. Well, there's something since I've been talking to people all week about this. You just brought something up, which I really hadn't thought about. We keep talking about when it reaches that crisis level. Mm -hmm. But in many cases, we don't even have to go anywhere near there. Just noticing that someone's going through a tough time can keep them way far away from ever reaching the brink. Absolutely. I mean, most of us um, need some help with life stressors. And really, a lot of what we see is, um, you know, those life stressors pile up and we kind of, you know, put them to the side because it's hard to, you know, we just keep plugging on. And a lot of our military members do that. But really about um, one in five people will be diagnosed with mental illness in their lifetime. So seeking help early can really prevent that from happening. Um, and help may be, you know, just talking with a friend or, you know, um, getting in to see someone, you know, can really help prevent that. So I think that's the most important message I'd like everyone to get today. So for those people, and I'm gonna split this up into categories, you've served or you are serving, you either need mm -hmm. help or you know someone who needs some help. So where are resources available? Yeah, so one of the things I recommend is the uh, Military One Source. That's the 1-800-342-9647. Um, you know, and if people aren't comfortable doing that, I think a great place to start is even talking with like your primary care provider. Um, you can look online at things like Psychology Today. They'll have a listing of therapists in your local area. Um, and the Wyoming Air National Guard actually has a Facebook page with resources. Um, it's listed under Airman Care Team. Um, so those are good places to start. Okay, just a few places to start. And again, if you see anybody, I like the idea, Nikki, because I haven't really discussed this with anyone all week long, is 
just being around for someone before they ever get anywhere near the brink, I think is probably the most important thing instead of waiting until they're on that edge because it's so difficult to pull them back from that edge. Okay. Nikki, anytime you need time Absolutely. to talk about, anytime you need time to talk about this stuff on the air, you know how to get a hold of us now, right? Great. Yes, I do. <laughs> okay. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Nikki Hernandez. And I would, I think, uh, Ms. Mary, we have one more guest coming up on that topic uh, sometime tomorrow. But looking at all this week, just the problem with veterans and suicide. And suicide is a problem in Wyoming itself, one of the worst in the nation, this state, for suicide. But when it comes to veterans, lots of them in the state. And they certainly could use a friend, at least. AM 650 KGAB, that was a segment Glenn did earlier this week on uh, veteran suicide awareness, uh, certainly topical um, and something we've discussed a lot on the air before here and uh, will continue to do so. AM 650 KGAB, Cheyenne's number one news talk radio station. If you have anything on your mind right now, we've got an open phone line for about a minute or so if you want to call up and make any kind of comment. Otherwise, checking our weather forecast, uh, it does look like we're going to be seeing some more rain today. Now, I did an interview, uh, actually I messaged on day, didn't do an interview, but I messaged him on our drought situation this week, and he said that here in southeast Wyoming, we're doing a bit better. Some other areas however not uh, not doing nearly as well it's kind of hit or miss certainly this precipitation yeah the the, the gray cloudy weather is nobody's idea probably of an ideal uh, May weekend, but the the precipitation is absolutely something we need and can use and um, something that uh, well, we actually need the rain, not just the clouds, so we'll see how that develops. Good to have you along. You're in tune with the Weekend in Wyoming program, Cheyenne's number one news talk radio station, AM650. Looks like we have somebody trying to call in. Um, I won't be able to get you on there this moment because we're about 30 seconds away from the bottom of the hour, but I'll tell you what, if you want to hold on here, uh, we'll come to you after the bottom of the hour break, or if you want to call back, uh, we can do that as well. So you're in tune with Cheyenne's number one news talk radio station, AM650. KGAB, Cheyenne Orchard Valley. It's 1231. Uh, we'll do some open phone lines to the other side of the break. If you have anything on your mind, give me a call. 632-6500. We do have somebody sitting on the line right now. We'll get to that call on here in just a couple minutes right here. Forecast is brought to you by Bob Ruart Motors. Doing business without the hassle, all roads lead to BobRuartMotors.com. Active spring weather through the weekend and this upcoming week here around the Cheyenne region. Daily shower and thunderstorm activity in the afternoon, evening, and even some overnight storms. Some moderate to heavy rain and strong thunderstorm activity capable of small hail and gusty winds. A lot of activity though staying just garden variety. Weekend highs near 60, lows near 40. I'm meteorologist for Cure. Hi everybody, I'm Jack Hanna. Since I was a boy growing up on the farm in Tennessee, I've been fascinated with animals. Not only in awe of their beauty behind us, but also their tireless work ethic. Just look at the birds who gather supplies to build nests, who wore trip boxes, who work hard to provide for their young. Or penguins who travel up to 500 miles to secure food for their families. Or bush babies whose impressive jump allows them to navigate the trees in the wild in search of fruit. This remarkable work ethic is shared by our best friends, the canines. We know dogs are our wonderful pets at home, but because of their acute senses, they also perform life-saving work every day. Dogs keep us safe at airports. They comfort returning veterans, some of whom suffer from PTS. They work with diabetics, alerting them 
when there's a change in their blood chemistry. Working dogs have a variety of highly trained roles that contribute to society and help those in need. So please join me and American Humane in supporting our heroic working dogs and all the amazing animals on this planet we inhabit together. Go to AmericanHumane.org to learn more. The Army National Guard is committed to keeping the country safe and our communities secure. Composed of hundreds of thousands of citizen soldiers from all walks of life and in every corner of America, the Guard is always ready to respond to local or national emergencies. The Army National Guard reacts to domestic operations in each of America's 54 states and territories, including Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, Guam, and the District of Columbia. Each state National Guard's unique domestic role is to act as the first line of defense in support of civil authorities in their state. The Guard's emergency responses include search and rescue missions for floods, combating wildfires, hurricane or tornado recovery, and the presidential inauguration. The Army National Guard. We are always ready. We are always there. And in every state and territory, we stand guard for our communities. To learn more, log on to NationalGuard.com. Sponsored by the Wyoming Army National Guard. Aired by the Wyoming Association of Broadcasters at this station. AM 650 KGAB. We'll do a little open phones here if you have anything on your mind. 632-6500-632-3323. If we don't get any calls, we'll just go into a recent interview. But in the meantime, phone lines are open. Checking some of the uh, items on our website today at KGAB.com. Yesterday, Wyoming State Senator Anthony Bichard, a Republican trying to unseat Representative Liz Cheney next year uh, disclosed he impregnated a 14-year-old girl when he was 18, describing the relationship as like Romeo and Juliet, saying it was uh, coming to light because of dirty politics. And good afternoon. You're on the air. Hi. This is Tom from Torrington. I was uh, calling in because you got three subjects today that uh, that uh, kind of stuck in my craw. Okay, go ahead. You started out with, with uh, Medicaid expansion, and I got to thinking, well, you know, uh, when, well, the story was, when I when I went in for, for a physical a couple, couple, four or five years ago, mm-hmm. and I said, and, and I, I paid with a credit card, and they said, oh, I messed up because that's the credit, that's the cash price, not the credit card price. Okay. No, you you're talking about Medicaid expansion. Are they gonna Are they gonna have six different prices for for what goes on there? Because um, I I I asked about it after you know I I uh, paid for my, with my credit card. They said they said yeah, it cost five bucks more. It would have been forty eight dollars if I would have paid cash. But but then five bucks more for for the for the credit card. Okay. And then I said, what about for insurance? And they said, they said, well, insurance would have been a hundred and some odd dollars. Oh my Lord. And the, and the, uh, because it takes them six months to get paid for it. Right. And then on top of that, I said, what about Medicare? And they said it would have been about $300 for about the same thing because it takes six months to a year to get paid with that. Well, that's a ridiculous price difference. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's what it I is. But, but then again, uh, when I retired from the military, from the army, army guard, I, you know, I asked. But well, they said they said you got Tricare now, and if you can get somebody to take it. Uh huh. And they said if you're around the military base, maybe you could get it. And if then and, and uh, I asked 
you know, asked around to, to places that I might go into, and they said, uh, TRICARE, what's that? And the other one said, uh, TRICARE, uh, no, we don't take TRICARE here. And then just recently I was in uh, getting a, a driver's physical, and they said, they said uh, uh, there was a guy, a guy came in that was recently, uh, you know, uh, separated. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, they said, they said, no, we don't take TRICARE here. So what good is that? If Medicaid is the same way. Well, and, and that's a legitimate question, and I don't know the answer to that. Dr. Mansell seemed to indicate that uh, uh, that's a problem. Yep, yep. That's what I was. That's what I was hearing. So, um, if you can't get a get a price from anybody, but then again, they don't take what you got anyway. Well, and what, what, um, what, what he was advocating, and I'm a layman, I'm not a, Lord knows I'm not a doctor, and I certainly don't know a lot about medical care, but what he was advocating was, was basically putting the free market to work a little bit um, in this regard. And I know as a patient, it, it would be nice to know that, you know, I can get this procedure done at Facility X for this price, for Facility Y it would cost me this much. I mean, you shop around for everything else. It would be nice to be able to shop around for medical care as well. Yeah, it would. I mean, that just makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> I don't know. I kind of, uh, you know, I like, like I was always told that, that, that you know, uh, when you retire, when you retire from the military, they're going to take care of you. Yeah, yeah, if I go to the VA, maybe. But I'm not going to travel two, 300 miles in order to get to, you know, for, and they said, they also told me that if I was, if I was, was had an emergency, I would probably be screwed. So. <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> but well, and you bring up some legitimate points. So, sh- should we expand Medicaid or should we not? No, I don't think so because I never met, seen a seen a government thing that worked with a darn anyway. <laughs> right, but uh, uh, I mean, the, the government looks at looks at things like like how much do we need? So let's get that much from taxpayers, not. You know, this is how much we got. This is how much we're going to spend. So you mentioned yeah. all, all three topics stuck in your craw. What did you think about the other two people? Well, I was thinking. Well, I you know I I think that that uh, you know the, the the Israelis are are, are doing their damn just to get to get uh, you know through the <laughs> through what the, the the stuff that they got to get through. And when when we have we have. Half of our Congress now, tell, you know, talking talking bad about them, and and then uh, <laughs> again, there's too many socialist ideas in there anyway. But anyway, you got like AOC talking about how how uh, how the Israelis are are the terrorists. And I I don't know how we could you know until we get them out of there. I don't know what else we can do. Well, and and I I I don't remember. How can I phrase this? And I, I could be wrong because it's not something I've researched recently. But but I don't recall much support in Congress for Hamas until just recently. And, and it's not majority support, but they apparently yeah. do have their supporters. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I don't know. I there's there's well a few a few is too many as far as I know. I know. But. I totally understand. Hey, I appreciate the call this afternoon. Yeah. Okay. Have a, have a good one. 
AM 650 KGAB, again, doing some open phones here, 632-6500, if you have anything on your mind um, about any of the topics we covered today. And it uh, looks like we have another caller. Good afternoon. You're on the air. If you have anything on your mind. Well, you were on the air. I guess not. <laughs> Cheyenne's number one news talk radio station, AM 650 KGAB. We do have open phone lines, 632-6500, uh, 632-3323. Basically, anything you want to talk about, if you have anything you feel strongly about, you'd like to comment on, could be something we discussed today, could be something else. Uh, phone lines are open right now. Give us a call if you, uh, if you feel so inclined. <laughs> Okay, I'm speaking with uh, Todd Richards from the Weld County, Wyoming website. Uh, Todd being pre-recorded because he did have to work today. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. Now, first of all, you're advocating for Weld County of Colorado uh, to join Wyoming. What? Uh, why are you doing that? Uh, the. I guess you just say that the the values of of the people of Weld County more align with the people of Wyoming than they do with the people in Colorado. How so? Namely, Go ahead. Namely Denver and Boulder. Um, it's just the, um, in, in the stories, if you, if you kind of just start to follow what's going on in, in Colorado with the legislature, um, they don't, they don't, I don't, how do you put that? They, they don't understand rural Colorado. They don't understand the rural way of life. They don't understand ranching and farming. They just, they're, they're shutting down, uh, oil. And of course we know that, uh, Biden is doing the, uh, the same thing. So, um, you Colorado, especially, uh, the Northeastern, uh, corner of the state is losing, uh, oil and gas pretty quickly. And um, and they're just kind of going after ranching because one, I think they don't understand, and then there's a couple of a couple of other things. The um, the governor's husband is a vegan, and um, uh, the governor also appointed um, the um, what would you call her a uh, a veterinarian over the cattle industry and she is also a, a vegan also and she's been uh seen in places like uh costco and uh, a couple other places like that with the meat is murder signs and really supporting uh PETA and things like that and she is the head of the board of the of veterinarians for the for ranching in the state of colorado so that just kind of tells you where uh their mindset is is they just don't want they want ranching you know all all animal uh, agriculture out of the state and they uh and they're doing their their darndest to get it uh, to get it out of there so and and i know from talking from a lot of ranchers that live here in colorado they've already moved their ranching operations to wyoming so people are already moving to wyoming uh and still living here in colorado people that are um living in Wyoming and still working in Colorado or, you know, vice versa, vice versa, live in Colorado and, and work in Wyoming. So, um, the transition is, is kind of happening. Um, but we're really not, you know, we haven't moved that state line down to envelop, uh, Wild, uh, Wild County yet. So. 
Now, for, now from our previous conversations, I also remember you did bring up a couple of other issues. Uh, you did feel that the uh, current Colorado state government's hostile to the oil and gas industries. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. They're still just just as hostile as ever. So, yeah, they're, they're pushing uh, more setbacks. So, um, yeah, the setbacks would go, they wanted that quarter mile. So that would pretty much eliminate all, all of Colorado uh, land to be explored, except for a teeny tiny little uh, portion, I believe, in Morgan County, and that would be it. Um, so it, all gas and oil exploration would be gone in the state. And um, they kind of changed their mind a little bit, and I think that they were going for um, about 200, 200, or I don't want to say it was quite, it was not quite the, the quarter mile. It might have been 2,100. I, I don't remember now because it kind of stalled a little bit and um, it really hasn't done anything, but there's still a lot of talk about pushing back. Now, I also recall you had some concerns on Second Amendment issues. Am I right? Can I say again? I, I also recall you had some concerns about Second Amendment issues, gun issues. Uh, yes. Uh, so we do know that there's some new um, amendments that, that they're pushing or um, not amendments, uh, some new regulations that are going to start coming out this next to go around that are going to be that are going to really go after uh, guns. We haven't seen any of what the bills are going to look like, but um, talking with some people uh, down at the, at the state, they're, they're going to go just straight after straight after guns so and um you know that's uh you know second amendment and they're going to try to uh uh get rid of a lot of that we we kind of look at it as how um california does their um does their laws and, and that's one of the things that that we know is um uh, this kind of uh wants to be wants california to be or Colorado to be just like California. So when Governor Newsom does something, 60 days later or less, uh, Governor Polis does the same thing. So um, we already follow the um, air quality standards of California. So anything that, that they do in California, we do the same thing. So um, we're, we're getting rid of just uh, a lot of... Uh, um, how would you put those things? DOCs in spray cans and spray paints and same thing that California does. And I would expect here in the near future, you know, you, you look on a product and it says um, something, something 65. Um, I'm not sure what that what that is, but it says that this this product has been found to cause cancer in the state of California. And I would expect here pretty soon it'll also have Colorado in there also. So um, the... Uh, the governor's really trying to make us just like uh, just like California. And if I wanted to live in California, I would move to California. So, um, and I have lived in California. I lived there for six years. So I kind of know what uh, what is uh, what is coming our direction. So there are people that 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 don't like it. They don't want to be part of it. And some people can afford just to pick up, you know, their you know move. You, know, you you pick up all your your house belongings and you and you move to a different state and there, you know there's a lot of people that can do that but then you get those big ranches that have you know 200 acres and a house that's been here since the 
early 1800s, and you just can't pick up, you know, two 200 acres and a big house and and move it to, to Wyoming. So, so we've always thought the next the next best thing to do would be to try to move to move the state lines, and and we'll you know we'll see uh, see how that goes. That's not an easy thing to do, though, is it? There are several hoops you have to jump through. Is that right? Yes. Um, as since we've talked last time, um, we really haven't found those hoops because nobody's really done it. Um, so what we're doing is uh, in um, Oregon and Idaho. Um, Idaho is going to, well, there are several counties in Oregon and a couple in Washington and a bunch in California that are looking at becoming part of Idaho. Well, they're about a year, about a year ahead of us. So we're watching uh, what they do and um, how they go about um, doing that. Granted, the, the Idaho legislature and their rules and constitution are completely different than Colorado's and Wyoming's, but at least we can get to, <clears throat> get a grasp of what what's going on and and see how you know how they're doing and what mistakes they've made and or what you know what uh, worked for them, and then we can try those uh, those things also. So uh, we're we're really watching what's going on over in uh, in uh, Oregon and Idaho. So. Now, according to what I, uh, when I researched this, what I read, it sounds like, and correct me if I have the procedure wrong here, but it sounds like you'd have to get both the states of Wyoming and Colorado to sign off on this, and then I believe it would have to be approved by Congress. Is that accurate? Uh, Congress would be probably not, um, because people throw Article 4, Section 3 at me all the time, and they're like, well, you can't do that, because it says... Um, uh, when you form a new state, and I just tell them stop right there because we're not forming a new state. You know, this is not going to be, uh, w you know, Weld um, United States of America. This is going to be Weld County, Wyoming. We're just joining a different state. So when people throw this uh, Article 4, Section 3 at me and all the sub below it, it's just like, no, this, this doesn't apply because it is not a, um, we're not forming a new state. We're just joining a different one. So then it just becomes what does each state's constitution require? Um, Colorado does have a um, something in there that if you wanted to create a new county or change the borders of a county, then it has to go to a statewide vote. So we were really looking at, at that. Do we have to do that? Because um, we're not changing the borders to be in the you know in the state because we're not we're not we don't want to be part of that state mm -hmm. so does that apply to us or not and um we're just kind of you know we're just still putting those feelers out there and to see does this just go to the colorado the legislature and does this just go to the wyoming legislature does <clears throat> does wyoming have the same provision or some kind of provision in that that says that you know when something like this comes along um, that that has to be a whole statewide vote. So, yeah, there's still some um, those little quirky things that we have to uh, that we have to figure out how those how those move along. So, um, we're just kind of well, actually, we were just kind of since we we spoke last time, we were just watching what was happening with uh, the elections, where we were getting our our you know our the base of what we're doing, getting some groundwork settled down, set down and put put in place and 
you know, get a bank account and get a post office box and uh, file with the with the state uh, um, on our collection. You know, whenever we take donations, we have to file that with the Secretary of State. So we got all those all those things done and 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 moving. And then we realized, well, we need to wait until the November election because if um, it comes along and in Weld County gets those things that Weld County really wanted in those elections and those things passed, then this Weld County Wyoming idea would just kind of slide off into the ditch and nobody else would care about it and then that would be the end of that. But it really didn't kind of go Weld County's way and um, a lot of things were, were voted on and um, a lot of stuff was changed and all of a sudden about a week before the um, the election, uh, our likes were at about 1,600, and about one week after the election, our likes were almost uh, 4,200. So, you know, we picked up about 3,000 likes in about a week. So a lot of people are really asking, really pushing, and it's coming from both sides of the border. There's people in Wyoming that are, man, this would be fantastic. Um, people who lived in Colorado and have already moved to Wyoming said, you know, why didn't you guys do this, you know, 10 years ago? Um, there's just <clears throat> just a lot of, uh, there's a lot of support in Colorado. I'd say it's probably, uh, probably about 80-20, maybe a little bit higher than that, maybe 80 people are for it and of course and the people who are against it just are just they're they're mean they just call you know rural Colorado is a bunch of hicks and and pot smokers and a uh, bunch of stuff like that so just the uneducated or just the um, we just call it the 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 liberal mindset of you're not like me so I'm just gonna bash you and call you names so we get we do get a lot of that. So, when you say eighty twenty roughly in favor or eighty eighty two eighteen, do you mean in Weld County or statewide in Colorado? Uh, it's probably Weld County, and we do get a lot of uh, statewide. It's kind of hard to tell statewide because you don't really know uh, where a lot of those people are from. I mean, you you could sit there and pick through each and every person and kind of get um, um, where they're from. Um, we had the the Fox Thirty One down here did a did a story. Uh, we didn't do an interview for it. They just pulled everything off of uh, Facebook and YouTube, and they just did the story. So we we kind of followed along and watched um, uh, the likes and the dislikes and all that stuff. And for a while, it was pretty much neck and neck. You know, just a few a few people here and there on the likes and the dislikes. And then all of a sudden, some strange thing happened, and it kind of happens a lot um you know it hits a few people and they share it and talk about it and thank you for joining us once again for the weekend in wyoming program you're in tune with am 650 kgab cheyenne orchard valley it's one o'clock thank you for joining us a Telsquare media of southeast wyoming podcast find more of our shows at kgab.com backslash podcasts